And one of the things that, that people who are on the mortgage side of the single family mortgage side of the industry sometimes don't appreciate as much about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is that they're also among the very largest lenders to multifamily property owners. So in my view that the goal of the GSE should not be to promote home ownership at all costs. Um, we've seen some of the downsides of doing that. Uh, putting people in homes they can't afford doesn't do them any favors and doesn't do the system any favors. What we should be doing is, as a country, um, as a matter of public policy, is ensuring that everybody in America has access to good, reasonably affordable housing that they can own or that they can rent. Welcome back, Housing News listeners. This is Alcina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. You just heard a word from the president of Blend, Tim Mayopoulos. In today's episode, HousingWire's editor-in-chief Sarah Wheeler joins Tim in a conversation on what makes him optimistic about the mortgage industry. He also discusses how he sees the role of companies as opposed to the government and moving the ball forward on home ownership expansion, as well as what Blend does to promote an inclusive work environment. Well, thank you for listening, and here's episode two of season seven of the Housing News Podcast. Welcome, everyone. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, with the latest episode of the Housing News Podcast. I'm very excited to talk to our guest today, Tim Mayopoulos, who is now the president of Blend and served as the president and CEO of Fannie Mae from 2012 through 2018. He joined Fannie Mae in 2009 and served as Executive Vice President, Chief Administrative Officer, and General Counsel. He has also worked at Bank of America, Deutsche Bank, and Credit Suisse. We're delighted to have him on here. Tim, welcome to Housing News. Thank you, Sarah. It's really a pleasure to be with you. I always enjoy it. Well, you know, the first question I like to ask everyone on the podcast is how they got into the mortgage or real estate business. And I'm really interested to hear how you got started in this industry. Well, you know, I'm a relative latecomer to it, to tell you the truth. Um, You know, I've worked in financial services my whole professional life, more or less. But uh, and and I had some experiences in um, in the mortgage and mortgage-backed securities markets uh, when I was working in investment banking um, in uh, in the 1990s and, and 2000s. But um, I didn't really get a deep dive into the mortgage industry until I joined Fannie Mae in uh, 2009 in the wake of the financial crisis. But at the time, um, you know, it seemed like uh, well, I used to think of. New York is the center of financial services in, in, in the country. Suddenly Washington was in, in light of the Great Recession. And, and so much of the financial crisis centered around housing. And Fannie Mae was, is the, was and is the biggest thing in housing finance. So the idea of being able to go to Fannie Mae as part of a new leadership team that was really charged with turning the, the markets around, turning the housing industry around, turning the company around was really exciting to me. So that's how I got into this business. What an incredible time to to jump in and and uh, help lead uh, help lead us out of that recession. Really interesting. It was a fascinating time, you know, super challenging. Really, no playbook for what we were doing. Uh, really, no playbook for what anybody was doing. But um, but it was very exciting and interesting, and and um, I really feel quite uh, humbled by having the opportunity to do it. You know, one of the Things one of the themes we wanted to talk about today was really what we're seeing in the market, which I'm sure you know, Blend is right at the at intersection of some of this, which is that companies that were traditionally siloed in either mortgage or real estate 
have really expanded into each other's territory, right? And we've got iBuyers doing mortgages. We've got mortgages, you know, having agents. And all of them are partnering with tech companies to own the real estate transaction end-to-end. You know, what kind of companies do you think are best positioned to achieve that? Like, which side is do you think is going to, quote-unquote, win? Well, I, I think what you're observing is exactly right, that, um, you know, consumers are not looking at this as a series of discrete transactions from picking an agent to finding a home to financing it to moving into it they're thinking about it as an overall experience and so um, it's a journey for them and i think that uh, everybody in the industry has started to realize that meeting the consumer on that journey and helping them at every step along the way in that journey is critical to success and that just showing up um, when they want to finance the property is is probably not enough. Uh, I don't think there are any particular companies that or type of companies that are necessarily better situated to do this than others. Uh, you know, for example, I think I think banks could do this. I think credit unions could do this. I think fintech companies can do it. The, the kind of i buyers that you're describing, independent mortgage originators could do this. But but they they need to be able to pull together different threads of the experience in order to be successful at it. Um, you know, they need to be able to um, meet consumer expectations around the journey. Um, it's not good enough that they're that they know mortgage or real estate. They need to be able to create an experience that's more like an Amazon or Netflix or an Apple experience where everything comes together in an orchestrated way. And so much of that is dependent on understanding what the consumer wants and meeting them where they are. And, and frankly, you know, being able to deploy technology in a way that will, will meet those consumer expectations because not every consumer wants to do everything on their phone, but they want to be able to do it how they want to do it, when they want to do it. And they often want to be able to do it on their couch um, at, at, at midnight. And so being able to architect experiences that way um, is, is important. I also think that there are very few institutions or companies that can do this completely on their own. I think a key to all this is being able to partner with others to be able to create a holistic experience by, by having contributions from different sorts of parties. So for example, um, you know, at Blend, we, we help our customers do this. Um, you know, they, they're not, they don't necessarily want to be in the title business. They don't necessarily want to be in the homeowner's insurance business. They don't necessarily wanna be in moving services business or realty services, but they wanna be able to deliver that kind of experience to their customers. Um, and so they may provide some of those services themselves, but they may wanna partner with us or with others to provide other aspects of that. And I think uh, one of the things that we have found success at is being the technology platform by which all those things can be melted together and, and delivered into a unified experience. Yeah, so interesting um, that that you're, you know, kind of what you said there, which I totally agree with, is you have the traditional financial institutions or even the newer ones who are really trying to get to the customer and understand that whole experience and how to do that. At the same time, you know, when I started at HousingWire in 2013, we were still kind of dealing with the aftermath of a lot of the regulation and Dodd-Frank and that. And then and then you just saw this explosion of, of fintech come in uh, into the space. And one of the things that we were looking at at that time was like, how are these companies, these tech companies um, going to really handle the regulation, 
right? And especially as we saw some tech companies, you know, Amazon famously for, uh, they hired like a head of mortgage and and it was all the talk, you know, maybe 2016, something like that. I can't remember where it was like, are they going to get into mortgage? But then you think about, you know, the regulatory aspects of getting into mortgage, of really being a lender. And, and you know that, you know, better than most, like that that's a daunting thing. So on both sides, they need each other, right? You, you need fintech, you need the technology, but you also need the knowledge of, of how to do this and do it in a compliant way. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, regulation is both um, a, a hurdle or a challenge to be overcome, but it's also uh, a competitive advantage. If you can do it and others can't, you know, that's that's uh, that, that's valuable. I remember, for example, when I went to Bank of America years ago as the general counsel there, and I remember my first meeting with the CEO uh, was Ken Lewis. Uh, and I said, you know, what, what keeps you up at night? You know, this is back in 2004. And he said, if Walmart decides to get into the banking business, that would keep me up at night. And yet, you know, Walmart had a very challenging time overcoming a lot of regulatory opposition to their entry into the market. So while we all think about regulation as sometimes being a, a hassle, it is potentially a competitive advantage. And I think that that the, the companies that will be able to you know, do what you were asking about earlier, which is how do you create a unified end-to-end consumer journey are the ones who understand those regulatory requirements, understand what consumer expectations are, but can deliver the total experience, usually through some combination of technologies uh, in a way that, that will meet all of those requirements. It's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to watch. It's one of the things that makes this such an interesting industry, I think, to see how it's evolved. Um, and, and I think some of those regulations from, you know, Dodd-Frank are, are the same things that laid the foundation for where we are in tech today, right? If, if people were still doing that, you know, if they hadn't been forced in some ways to get away from the, from the paper and, and provide a different kind of experience for auditors and, and, and just all the things that they had to prove, I'm not sure how much longer it would have taken to get into the tech that we are in today. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, one of the things at Fannie Mae that drove us to become much more tech-oriented was the fact that, you know, at Fannie Mae, they're, they're buying literally millions of dollars of loans every day, you know, and guaranteeing them against credit loss. When the financial crisis hit, we actually had very little insight into what was in our loan portfolio. I mean, we had, you know, we had certain kinds of data at an aggregate level, but we couldn't, there was no way to actually understand any particular loan file except by opening up a box of paper and examining hundreds of pieces of paper in it. And that led us to conclude that the only effective way for us to inspect what was being delivered to us was to do that digitally. Um, and you know, the combination of advances in technology together with that, that you know, recognition of that need and basically in order to be able to protect taxpayers and make sure that we actually knew that the loans that we were acquiring were of high quality and met our standards. That's what drove you know, the GSEs towards towards that path. And I think that's only reinforced the kind of technological change that we're seeing more generally in the industry. I still wouldn't say that mortgage is at the front end of technological adoption. It's not. Um, this is a, a slow-moving industry, but I am excited about the, the opportunities that, that we have um, to, to, to move that forward. Well, let's talk a little bit about, about the differences that you see now. I mean, I would think the experience of leading Fannie Mae, a government-sponsored enterprise, is very different than the experience of being president at Blend. You know, what surprised you the most about working for a tech company after working at Fannie Mae? 
Well, it's been a huge amount of fun. I mean, it's more than met uh, all of my expectations in, in going to a place like Blend. Um, you know, I work with really smart, talented people, many of whom know a lot about the mortgage industry, but many of whom, you know, quite candidly, you know, are not, didn't grow up in the industry and, and have had to learn it, but they're bringing remarkable, fresh new perspectives, which I think is one of the reasons for our success. Um, but the thing that's actually surprised me the most is, um, uh, is how is is how interesting it is, how much fun it is. It's um, you know, one of the things I worried about when I left Fannie Mae, which you know is, you know, it's a Fortune 20 company, it has a three trillion dollar balance sheet that, you know, it acquires and guarantees one in three mortgages in the country uh, at any given time. I, you know, it's a really complicated stakeholder management job. I was worried about whether anything that I did next, whether it was blend or anything else, would be as interesting. And and it's turned out to be every bit as interesting in many ways because of the innovation we're driving and the speed with which we can move and the nimbleness with which we we tackle new problems. So for me, it's been fun. And, you know, frankly, I, I'm literally the oldest person at Blend. And, you know, the median age is probably 28 or 29. And, you know, getting to work with really smart young people has been um, hopefully it's kept me a little bit younger than I would be otherwise. You know, I, I love that. Actually, I was looking on Blend's website because uh, I have a question coming up about about culture and you know your your different affinity groups. Or um, one of them is called Blend Wise, and it's like for those wise people over forty. And I just start laughing. I'm I'm in my mid fifties. I was like, well, is there a is there a wise plus wise? Because like I, I'm like even farther than that. So <laughs> it is kind of funny to think of like forties the you know forties the wise age, but. Uh, that's great. That's awesome. Um, you know, you've been part of big, successful companies going back to at least 2000, and, and which means you've seen a lot of trends around company culture come and go. So what do you see at Blend that you think is really impactful when it comes to creating a great company culture? You know, I, I give a lot of credit to um, one of Blend's founders, Nima Gamsari, and, and some of the other found, co-founders as well. They, they were very focused on the culture of the company as they were creating it and scaling it. Um, and uh, Anima uh, has spent a lot of time uh, articulating this in something he calls the blend way. Um, and, and there are a number of different elements to the blend way, but, but there are a few that I think are really important to us. I mean, one is that um, we put the customer at the center of everything that we do. So we're, we're very customer centric and looking to create value for customers uh, every day. So that's something that's, you know, really a critical part of our culture. Uh, second is is this notion of we 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 promote confident humility. Um, you know, we want people to have the confidence to be able to tackle big, challenging problems, but enough humility to understand that there are lots of things they don't know about them. There are things to be learned about them, and that we're probably going to fail at some things along the way. And the key is to do that in a in a thoughtful way and bounce back up and, and, and get back on it. And then a, a third part of it is really about um, embracing what we call embracing the difficult path, um, that we don't do things the necessarily the easiest way or the, the, the most, uh, the fastest uh, way or, or, or necessarily the way that would make us the most money. We really try to figure out what's the best way to do this, even if it takes a little longer, it's a little bit more complicated and it comes with um, a little bit more challenging in putting it together. So I think being able to articulate those principles and really model those behaviors has really led us to have a very strong culture um, 
that is really all about innovation and, and personal growth and, and really serving the needs of our customers in a, hopefully in a, in a, in a, with a sense of confident humility. Really interesting. You know, traditionally tech companies have struggled to create inclusive cultures. I mean, it's just sort of the stereotype. What has Blend done to counter that? So I, again, we've been very conscious about this. Um, you know, the, the tech industry does not have a great reputation as being a terrific place for women or for uh, underrepresented minorities. And, um, you know, we did something really quite um you know, it was a big investment for a company of our size at the time. But as I was joining the company, um, we, we also hired, uh, you know, a, a head of uh, diversity, inclusion and belonging, um, um, a fellow named Ulysses Smith, who is really quite um, remarkable. And and we we quite consciously said, you know, this is where we are um, and by a number of different measures of diversity and inclusion. Um, we're not where we want to be. We're going to put some stakes in the ground as to where we would like to be. We're going to f- consciously focus on recruiting people and retaining people and developing people and started reaching out to, um, you know, places to, to find talent that are not the usual places and have been able to create a much more diverse, much more inclusive environment than, than if we had not done those things. Now, are we where we want to be? No, is there more to do? Absolutely. This is not one of these things you do and then you declare victory and you're done. It, it requires constant vigilance and, and effort, but it's really been because we have, we, we've put it top of mind. We, we measure um, ourselves around this. We hold ourselves accountable as a leadership team. And, um, and I think that's why we've been able to, to make the progress we have. And here's a brief word from our sponsor. Partner with Rocket Pro TPO and get great tools to grow your business. Do more for your clients with the SOS Scenario Desk, a dedicated team ready to answer questions about loan products or guidelines before you submit a loan. Rocket Connect lets you problem solve or connects you to an expert team helping loans move faster. The tech, products, and resources you need now. Visit rocketprotpo.com to partner with us today. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states and MLS number 3030. You know, um, expanding homeownership is at the core of the GSE mission, you know, as part of its duty to serve. uh, And that encompasses manufactured housing, affordable housing, preservation and rural housing. Um, Now that you're working outside the GSEs, I know that this is a, a particular passion of yours right? Um, expanding homeownership. Now that you're outside the GSEs, how do you see the role of companies, the private sector, um, as opposed to the government in really moving the ball forward there? So I, I guess one thing is like, I, I, I'm very much of the view. And one of the things that, that people who are on the mortgage side of the single family mortgage side of the industry sometimes don't appreciate as much about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is that they're also among the very largest lenders to um, uh, multifamily property owners. And uh, so in my view that the goal of the GSE should not be to promote home ownership at all costs. Um, we've seen some of the downsides of doing that. Uh, putting people in homes they can't afford doesn't do them any favors and doesn't do the system any favors. What we should be doing is, as a country, um, as a matter of public policy, is ensuring that everybody in America has access to good, reasonably affordable housing 
that they can own or that they can rent. Um, and that's in many ways a personal choice. Um, uh, and and I, I think that certainly uh, at Fannie and Freddie, I think oh, since the crisis, I think they've become a little bit more balanced around thinking about home ownership uh, versus, versus rental. Um, but there are some very serious challenges that the, the country faces. The, the most serious challenge uh, around housing is really around supply. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think that policymakers have done a good job of, of uh, increasing accessibility to credit. Um, it's, it's not perfect. There's still more, more work to be done, but, but we have good credit standards now and there's um, better credit accessibility uh, than there used to be. Home prices are a real problem. Um, rents are a real problem, but those are really a function of a lack of supply. That's not a solution that that Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac are, are, are easily in a position to do anything about. And one of the things I had hoped that we would see in the new infrastructure bill that's being debated in Washington now is really treating housing as part of the core infrastructure of the country. Um, in the way we think about airports or railroads or roads or, you know, we should think about housing as being a core component of the infrastructure of the country. You need it in order to have good, safe, um, sustainable communities. And um, I, I do think that one of the great, one of the, one of the real policy challenges of housing is that so much of the inability to increase supply is a function of local regulation. So things like housing codes, things like zoning laws, um, the high cost of labor is, is, a, is a critical factor, high cost of goods. So these are not easy problems for the federal government to solve, um, but, but I do think that, that, that we need more attention there. I think your question was really around what, what can private industry do around this? I think you're seeing some really interesting innovations around modular housing, interesting innovations around manufactured housing, essentially assembling houses uh, in factories and as opposed to on site with, um, you know, with, with traditional labor methods. Um, you know, people are now, you know, printing three, 3D printing houses, uh, which is super exciting. Um, and, and, and so I think that there's lots of opportunity for us to promote those technologies in order to just decrease the cost of housing, uh, the cost of building it and putting it up. And, and I think that can help mitigate some of the pricing challenges that we're currently experiencing. It's so interesting because we've seen so much uh, focus on the innovation on the manufacturing of the loan that I feel like the manufacturing of the house itself has um, has not gotten, at least in, in my view, uh, very uh, the same sort of attention. It's not that people aren't innovating. It's just that the widespread adoption of those innovations, right? We haven't seen that. And But I do feel like right now, manufactured housing in particular, we're seeing a huge upswing in interest. So, so not only, you know, has the federal government really made that uh, something they're talking about a lot, um, especially this summer and going forward, that they've been talking about it for a long time, right? What we're seeing is lenders being interested, more interested um, in manufacturing homes, but also in, in like you said, mo- modular housing, like where do they fit in that puzzle? Instead of just like, give me your stick built house, give me your, you know, give me the things that I already know how to do. And, and it's going to take, it's going to take all parties to make that a reality on a large scale, right? So, so where do you think where do you think that the some of the roadblocks are right now for for getting some of those modular housing or just alternative housing um, to become more mainstream? 
So I think that, um, you know, there's, there's, um, it, it's like changing anything. It's like, you know, showing people what's possible. Um, I, I remember going some years ago when I was at Fannie, going down to Austin, Texas, and seeing the first um, 3D printed house that actually conformed to local zoning standards. It was a very cool little house. It was really like a little cottage. It was, you know, uh, built in somebody's backyard. And it, they basically, you know, laid down concrete walls for this house and then finished off the rest of it in, in more traditional methods. But but you could they they literally put up the walls, the foundation of the walls of this house in less than 48 hours doing this. And it made you realize that, you know, and this company that was doing it was focused not really so much on the U.S. market, but it was focused actually on um, impoverished countries, uh, let's say in Latin America, where there's a great need for lots and lots of low-cost housing that can be built very efficiently and quickly. And it turns out the, the component ingredients of concrete are the same basically everywhere. And so you can, and they're found everywhere. So you, all you had to do was like ship this equipment in a, in a, in a, in a trailer down to, uh, you know, Guatemala or Costa Rica or someplace and they, they could put up this housing. So I think what we will see is that as these, as these technologies um, find pilot circumstances, people will learn from them and they will, they will evolve in advance. Um, you know, modular housing, uh, you know, suffers today from some supply chain challenges, but, you know, the cost of producing a modular home is, is substantially less. Um, and, you know, assuming we can solve the supply chain problems and the transportation problems, I think that will gain more ground. I mean, a lot of this is just gaining public acceptance. Like there's, there's a, a negative connotation to anything called manufactured housing. Um, you know, people typically think about trailers and trailer parks. Um, and, uh, and, and now when people are talking about manufactured housing, they're actually talking about something that is a much more durable, long-term appreciating asset as opposed to, you know, a depreciating um, uh, asset. So, so I think it will take time. But I think it will come. Um, but it's going to require some of these local changes, as I mentioned. You know, being able to to open up zoning laws, to be uh, to to be thoughtful about um, uh, building codes is really important. I mean, we don't think about what the cost of every change to a building code really entails. And while we all want to have safe homes, you know, is the incremental cost always worth? Um, you know, what, 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 what it costs. So um, I, I think we'll get there. I don't have any magic bullet for it. I think, you know, change comes slowly sometimes at the beginning, and then you see it, you know, an acceleration as it gains greater adoption. Yeah, really good point. And, you know, we, I think about what uh, is done at the state level. So California last week, uh, just implemented some um, state level rules about uh, single family housing. And it reminds me of like the SECURE Act, which is going through Congress right now that would have a federal mandate for um, that would override, if you want to say that, uh, the state laws about e-closings, RON in particular, right? Um, remote online notarization. So, so I do wonder if we're going to see, see more of that. This is the only way we can do it, like as opposed to going in and trying to change everything um, at the local level, if you're going to see more federal initiatives or state initiatives to kind of overcome some of those zoning challenges. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see. I, I will say that um, historically, 
things related to real estate and land regulation have been viewed as the, the province of, of state and local governments. And um, I, I don't sense that people in, in communities across the country are necessarily going to be happy about turning over control of their communities to, to people in Washington. Um, I think they would they would ask people in Washington to fix the stuff they're currently accountable for before they start. start <laughs> I, I agree. Supporting yeah. That. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a great point, especially particularly maybe uh, uh, after the last few years that we've had here, it's been challenging for, for people to trust government in general in some ways. Um, let's talk now about, about the GSEs and conservatorship. You know, there, there was a push in the last administration to maybe bring Fannie and Freddie out of conservatorship, there's not a quick path. And, and then given the pandemic, that really was not even a, it wasn't a viable path that, that um, a lot of people could see. The current administration seems, you know, less interested in that. You know, what do you see as the future of the GSEs? And what do you, what do you hope is the future of the GSEs? Well, uh, you know, I guess, I guess one, one thing to observe um, as somebody who joined, you know, Fannie Mae in 2009, you know, in 2009, there were, Virtually everyone thought that the right answer was to get rid of the GSEs, that we should just abolish them. Um, and I don't think anybody thinks that that's the right answer today. Maybe there are some people who think that, but that's certainly not the consensus view. Um, clearly, the the GSEs have been reformed with the oversight of FHFA and their own boards and management teams. They are very different institutions today than they were before. They still play the same critical role, but... Um, the 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 focus on credit standards, the focus on credit distribution, um, you know, the advent of credit risk transfer transactions and creating a whole new market for private capital to take much of the credit risk that the GSEs historically held um, to better insulate um, you know taxpayers from exposure. I think those are all been remarkable successes. Um, and and in many ways, I think one of the reasons why very few people are focused on taking the companies out of conservatorship is that there is no burning platform. There's no problem. These, these are working well. Now, clearly the GSE should have more capital to, to withstand um, you know, potential downturns in the market. Um, and I, I, you know, FHFA continues to, to focus on that. But you know, while as a, as a matter of public policy, we have increased the, the amount of capital that financial institutions uh, other than the GSEs need to hold, we have increased that dramatically over the last 10 years. Um, you know, just the opposite has happened uh, at, at Fannie and Freddie, which, which frankly doesn't make a lot of sense. So we, need, we do need them to be able to recapitalize. Uh, I don't know that they will be able to attract the kind of capital they will need so long as the political future of the organizations remains uncertain and what their business model is going to be. So if, if people want to put more private capital in front of taxpayer exposure, they need to kind of resolve what, what, what the business model and what the governance structure is going to be for these entities. Um, I, I do think that, you know, and this is, this is one of these things that maybe one appreciates only if one has actually worked in these organizations and sees the day-to-day effect. But, and I don't mean this as a criticism of FHFA, which I think has actually done a remarkable job uh, managing something for much, much longer than was ever contemplated. And I think overall has done a very effective job in, in, in the conservatorships of the two companies. But for these companies to be as vibrant and as forward-looking and as innovative and as you know, driving progress in the industry as they should be and historically were, they, they shouldn't be controlled by, by 
by the government. They shouldn't be overseen by regulators. And I don't mean this in a disparaging way with respect to the folks at FHFA or anywhere else who are regulators. We need regulators. Regulators play a really important role. But regulators you know, are not experienced commercial operators. Um, they're not experienced in, 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 you know, in, in running something at the scale of, of Fannie and Freddie. And, and frankly, they acknowledged that from the beginning. They said, we're going to hire professional management teams and we're going to install professional directors. They, they knew that they didn't have the operational experience or capacity to do this. And yet we've allowed them uh, to play a really outsized role in the day-to-day operations of these companies. Um, and frankly, the industry has actually almost has actually encouraged that. You know, is it's it's wanted to put more and more restrictions on the GSEs so as to you know avoid any kind of surprises uh, that that um, that that the industry you know may not see coming. And I think ultimately the industry will regret that because I think it's leading to the long-term degradation of these institutions. There you're seeing a lot of brain drain out of Fannie and Freddie um, because. The, the people who work in these places are really talented. They have lots of other opportunities. And, you know, so while, while they were working to kind of rebuild the housing market, that was exciting and satisfying work. But, you know, much of that work has been done. And now they would like to be able to operate like employees in any other successful organization. And it's been really, really frustrating, I think, um, certainly over the last, the last few years. So, I think everyone understood there needed to be a period of conservatorship, um, but an endless conservatorship, I think, will ultimately uh, cause these organizations to become less effective. And you know, there are other big actors in the housing finance market that, that people look at that are much more closely tied to the government that people do not look at as being innovative or forward-leaning. I don't think that's what we want to have happen to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. When people talk about, um, you know, let's make them utilities, you know, what, what is your view on them as utilities? You know, when, when people talk about making Fannie and Freddie into utilities, they're, they're not usually very explicit about what they mean. Um, if what they mean is, is what, you know, what a lot of utilities we're all familiar with look like, you know, companies that have private capital in them companies that are owned by shareholders, companies that are professionally managed, but subject to significant regulation. Um, I think that's a model that could work fine. Um, you know, you could argue that other than the private capital and the shareholders, um, you know, that's much of what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are today. I don't think anyone doubts that these organizations ought to be highly regulated. Um, it's just a question of, um, should the regulators be involved in everything or should they just be providing regulatory oversight um, and ensuring that, that the companies have highly qualified management teams and, and are focused on, on, on the right things? Um, so I'm, I'm not opposed to thinking about Fannie and Freddie as regulated utilities, but I, I think if they're going to be successful regulated utilities, they need to be able to attract talent. They need to be able to compensate that talent. They need to be able to motivate that talent. They need to be able to allow them to develop their own business plans and strategies for how they can be successful and how they can help the industry be successful. I think that would be a great step forward. 
You know, uh, one of the things that happens because they control so much, you know, because they're the, the buyers of so much of the loans, right, is they become sort of a de facto regulator in the sense of whatever whatever their policies are, then become the, um, you know, what is conforming and, and, and becomes sort of the law of the land. It, you know, how do you how do you counter that in the current environment or should you counter that? Well, I think, you know, we um, we have experience, recent experience with what happens when we don't have that kind of day-to-day quasi-regulation. Um, you know, the the private label securitization market boomed uh, in the years leading up to the financial crisis, and the GSEs lost a very significant market share. And what we found was that there really was not effective regulation of that alternative market, and um, credit standards deteriorated significantly. Uh, investors, you know, were, were perhaps relying too heavily on on um, on rating agencies and others, and and it led to a really terrible situation. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't allow for competition against the GSEs. We should, but but I think we we, we but unregulated competition in a market as important as this housing market. Um, can lead to some really bad results. And we don't have to go back very far to see that. No, no, we really don't. Well, uh, I wanted to ask you this last question. Thank you so much for for coming on. And, and, And this last question is, you know, what makes you excited when you look at the housing market today, when you look at the mortgage market today, when you look at the technology, what are you excited about? I'm excited about two things. Um, one is that I'm excited that the industry seems to be pivoting towards an understanding that to be to serve the needs of the market, it's going to be, need to to address a much more diverse set of customers than it has in the past. Um, it's going to need to reach out to communities of color. It's going to reach out to you know um, non traditional family structures. It's going to need to figure out how to deal with gig workers and people who don't get a W two pay stub. And um, so I, I'm excited about the fact that. Um, at long last, I think we are seeing the industry become more open-minded and more thoughtful about how to help a much more diverse set of customers gain access to home ownership. Um, that's not altogether where it needs to be, but I'm excited about that overall trend. And then the other thing I'm really excited about is the the rate of technological advancement in the industry. You know, this is not the fastest moving industry in terms of technology adoption. Um, but when you, when you, when I look at things like the cloud and the much lower cost to acquire and transmit and store data, the ability to connect different systems through APIs at very low cost and high speed, the ability to integrate different kinds of technologies onto a single platform, um, the ability to, to lower the cost for the consumer. Um, you know, I know lenders are focused on and how do we reduce the cost uh, to the lender and keep their margins reasonable? I'm also really focused on how do we actually pass some of that savings along to the consumer because the the transaction costs of buying and selling real estate is a pretty high regressive tax, which makes it very difficult to finance relatively low cost properties in particular. So I'm excited about that technological wave, which I think we're just at the front end of. And I think we will see much, much more of that over time. 
We're excited too. We're watching Blend as, as we go forward. Definitely a, a mover in this environment. And Tim, just thanks so much for coming on Housing News. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it and um, wish you the best. Thanks. Thank you. Radiant Ready positions you to do business better. By easing the transition from title production to title curative, Radiant Ready clears the way for quicker closings with less legwork. You can also expect accurate searches, seamless workflows, end-to-end service, and easy-to-understand title reports for your borrowers. If you're ready for a better take on title, you're ready for Radiant Ready. Visit Radian.com Ready Title for more details. That's Radian.com slash Ready Title for details. Thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and rate us on iTunes. Until our next episode, make sure to check out Housing Wire Daily, a podcast dedicated to the hottest news stories across HW Media. The podcast is published each day and is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcast. Thanks for listening.